This afternoon, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Psalms, the same book of Psalms, and we'll be looking at Psalm 47. Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with a sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. This psalm celebrates the universal sovereignty and supremacy of the Lord God of heaven. And here in the opening verse, we have a summons to praise him, and the reason cited throughout this psalm concerns the implications of his universal reign. The opening line of the psalm runs, clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. And while we do not have here a dogmatic prescription as to how we are to praise the Lord, we do have a vivid description of what it means to be intensely engaged in the worship of Almighty God. To say that, the pra- that praising the Lord with such intensity is irreverent and disorderly will not do. And why is that so? Because time and again in Psalms, we are invited to praise the Lord loudly and fervently. And this is unreasonable when we consider the fact that we tend to get excited about things that matter to us. For example, there are people who get excited, they get enthused about sports, they get enthused when discussing politics, when they talk about their recreational activities, and sadly, we tend not to give half the level of passion to worshipping and praising God that he in fact deserves. Considering who he is, considering how much he has done for us in faithfulness, in mercy, in grace toward us. To do that is seen by some as being uh, fanatical. Some see it as religious fanaticism, as getting away, carried away into emotionalism. C.H. Spurgeon put it so well when he states regarding this call of the psalmist here in verse 1. He says this quote, the most natural and most enthusiastic tokens of exaltation are to be used in view of the victories of the Lord and his universal reign or joy in God may be demonstrative and yet he will not censure it, end quote. 
And of course, contrary to what some hold, this is not the only way in which God is worshipped. There are some who seem to think that God is worshipped only when there's noise, when there is a lot of emotions and there's just a lot going on in terms of passion. Psalm 62 verse 1, for example, tells us that there's a time when worship requires silence. Stand in awe before him. I want to consider this afternoon, what are some of the reasons the psalmist cites for praising the Lord? I don't think we'll get very far, but at least we'll cover this one. What are the reasons cited by the psalmist for which we should praise God and even praise him passionately and fervently? And the first is this, his divine grandeur and majesty, his divine grandeur and majesty. Look at verse 2. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. And the Hebrew word that's translated here as feared is rendered terrible in the King James Version. But the word terrible, as used there in the King James Version, is the equivalent of our modern word awesome. That word terrible has a negative ring, and so we don't use the word in, in that sense today, we talk of awesomeness, which carries the idea of that which inspires or of that which inspires holy fear. As that which impacts us with such wonder as to leave us, as we would say, breathless. We've had examples of such awe in Psalm 66 verses 3 and 5, where the psalmist is inviting people to praise God, and he says this, Say to God, how awesome are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. Come and see what God has done. He's awesome in his deeds toward the children of men. What the psalmist is simply saying here is this, that God is to be praised with enthused fervor because he's a majestically awesome God. He's awesome. He's awesome a God. He's a God who inspires holy fear. He's a God who inspires profound reverence. Notice he's described here in verse 2 as the Lord Most High. The Hebrew term there is El Elyon, which refers to God in his capacity as the proprietor of the universe. You'll remember back in Genesis chapter 14, verse 22, this was the name that Abraham invoked as, where, as he spoke to the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom wanted to give him the spoils from the war, some of the spoils, and Abraham swore by the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that he would not take even a shoestring from the king of Sodom, lest any should say, I've made Abraham rich. God was the possessor of the universe as far as Abraham was concerned. And for that reason, he would not stoop to taking any of the spoils from this heathen pagan king. So here in Psalm 47, 1 and 2, the psalmist is summoning the entire earth to worship and praise God in view of who he is, in view of his grandeur and his majesty. First of all, as it relates to his being the owner of all there is. Notice what he says, God is to be feared. He's the owner of all things because he's God most high. He's El Elyon, the possessor of the earth. Connection with the grandeur and majesty of God, the psalmist says we should praise and worship God not only because he owns everything, but because he's over everyone. He 
He's over the entire earth. Verse 2b, he's a great king over all the earth. Verse 7a, for God is the king of all the earth. Verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. In scripture, you know this, that the throne of God is symbolic of his universal authority. As in Psalm 11 and verse 4, the Lord's throne is in heaven, his eyelids see, his eyelids test the children of men. He looks down from heaven upon the world at large. He's over all. Psalm 29 verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. The word flood there is used in a metaphorical sense for peoples and nations. Beloved, in an age of confusion, in an age of chaos, in an age of fearful uncertainty and distress, in an age of suffering and all kinds of injustices, how refreshing, how assuring it is to know that as king of all the earth, God sits on his holy throne. And his sitting is is symbolic of the fact that he is unchallenged, his Rulership, his lordship is sovereign, his rulership, his kingship is unmatched. He cannot be effectively challenged, he cannot be ousted for, he is a sovereign, supreme lord over all. That he sits on his holy throne says that he's in charge even when evil seems to be having and holding sway. And how we ever need to be reminded of this. Because many a times, if we're not very careful, we allow our eyes to follow what we are seeing. And that dictates how we feel. It dictates how we order our lives. When we lose sight of the fact that God is in control amidst the chaos of our world, we will not lead stable lives. And that he sits on his holy throne says something to us of the character of his rule and reign. It tells us that unlike despotic, tyrannical rulers, unjust in their reign, unjust in their governance, his is a kingdom of truth and righteousness. Indeed, Psalm 89 verse 14, justice and judgment are the habitation of his throne. He's a king who rules in truth. He's a king who rules in justice, in righteousness. He's a king who rules in mercy and in grace. Now you'll notice that as further evidence of the Lord's supremacy over the nations, the Lord's supremacy over the earth, notice verse 9, the princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted the princes of the people who are they they are foreign gentile leaders they're not part of israel they're not part of the covenant at least in this time oftentimes in scripture foreign leaders Foreign powers, peoples, nations are seen as being hostile in opposition to God and his people. For example, Psalm 2 verse 1, the psalmist raises a question, why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Psalm 46 and verse 6 talks about how nations were moved, the nations were in rage. And the idea here is this, the psalmist is saying, notice what is happening in verse 9. 
The princes of the people, they are gathered with the people of Abraham. And what this lesson here for us is this, this the lesson here for us is this, that in time to come, God, the sovereign ruler of the universe, God who is overall, God who is the king of all the kings of the earth, will reconcile all peoples to himself. And this he'll do in consequence of the redeeming, reconciling work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are seeing in our times, even in the church, we have this spirit of polarization, of division, of disunity. We have today people who would want to bifurcate the church of God along the lines of ethnicity, along the lines of race, so-called. And yet here we see a picture, as God intended it, of peoples, of nations coming together as one before him. Kings of the earth, the peoples, the foreign princes are gathered with his people. What a blessing, what a blessed thought. And he'll do so, he'll unite all peoples to himself because again, look at verse 9. The shields of the earth belong to him. Again, metaphorical language is being used compared with Psalm 89 and verse 18 in which the word shield is used as a metaphor a king, the shield mentioned here in verse 9, is a reference to the kings of the earth. The psalmist is saying here that kingdoms, kings and rulers of this world belong to God. And may I suggest this, even tyrants, even wicked rulers, dictators, despotic rulers, tyrannical rulers, unjust rulers... They are, at the end of the day, God's servants. Again, this underscores the truth that God is over all. He's over everyone. He's over all rule in this world. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Kings, however wicked, kings, however unjust and tyrannical, serve the sovereign purpose of Almighty God. And that should be a comfort to you and me, particularly in these days in which we live. Now, what are the implications of God's sovereign reign over the nations? And the first thing we could note is this. As far as the implication of God's rule over the nations, we could say this, that even men and nations have their run, they have their way in promoting evil, in proliferating evil, only insofar as the sovereign, supreme Lord God of heaven allows them. They can do so more, so much, and no more. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Let me suggest to us this afternoon, I know you know this, but by way of reminder, Washington is, is, doesn't run things. At the end of the day, it is Almighty God who does. It is not the Kremlin in Russia. No, it is not 
um, that place on in Dar- Darling Street where Buckingham Palace. No, 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 it's not the, the parliament. None of that business. It is Almighty God who is ruler and king over nations and peoples. That God is sovereign and supreme over the nations of the world guarantees the ultimate end of all evil. It assures us that he'll rectify all wrongs, put down all forms of rebellion against his will. It tells us that at the end of the day, God wins, God calls the shot, and his purposes will certainly be fulfilled. That God is sovereign and supreme underscores the truth that there will come a time when there will be an end to all atrocities, all tyrannical acts of oppression and persecution against the weak and defenseless. That God is sovereign and supreme over the nations of the world, that he is sitting on his holy throne, affords comfort to persecuted believers. It affords comfort to persecuted believers. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 11, 1, and 1 through 4. He says, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend their bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Here comes verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eye see, his eyelids test the children of men. Translation, God is in charge even amidst the most horrible, horrific, brutal persecution and oppression there is. And we must never think that when, for example, we hear of Christians around the world being tortured, being killed, all kinds of atrocities being committed against them, that means the cause and purpose of God is being defeated. No, no, no. Even in the midst of those persecutions, even in the midst of those injustices, God is seated as king on his holy throne and he's working out his purposes even with respect to the evil that is being done in the world. That is supposed to be what? Comforting. That God is sovereign and supreme over the nations of the world, that he's sitting in his holy throne means that God is the ultimate controller of the actions and decisions of kings and rulers. Here's a very interesting narrative found in 2 Kings chapter 12, verses 19 through 23. The prophet Micaiah envisions the heavenly council in heaven, and here's what Micah reports. He's giving the word of God to those standing by, and he says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord, here it comes, sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him, on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said to another, One said one thing, another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. 
And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Now, admittedly, this passage is problematic, at least for some. Because the question is, what are these spirits doing in heaven? Seemingly evil spirits given to lying, given to enticing, and what with God saying to this evil spirit, go and carry out this thing of enticing Ahab so that he might fall. And the simple answer to that is this. We always have to start with this, that God is holy, God is righteous, God cannot be tempted with evil, he doesn't tempt any man. God ultimately takes responsibility, God ultimately, everything ultimately is traced to God so that the evils in the world, God, we could say, allows them in his sovereignty to occur. He allows evil to occur. And here's the point, evil cannot get so far unless he allows it. And yet the marvel is at the same time, God remains holy and God remains pure, and God is not a part of the evil. That's all we are to see. But here's the point that I want to see in this passage. In the heavenly council, God is sitting on his throne. And God's plan, if you know about Ahab, Ahab was a wicked king, a king who had sold himself to wickedness, to idolatry. And in the providence of God, in the whole plan and purpose of God, God's purpose was to destroy this king. And so what happens, we see here, God in the heavenly council, and the question is going to be asked again, what are these evil spirits doing there? Let me tell you, even the devil is accountable and answerable to God. Job chapter 1, the sons of God came to present themselves before God, and Satan also present them, presented himself to them. Let me say this, he fell, he fell from his position in heaven, but he is not left free to roam as he pleases. He's on a leash, and God has that leash in his hand. God sovereignly controls all that occurs in this world. Once again, all the evils, all the atrocities, all the injustices, the things that hurt us, the things that make our spirit bitter, the things that make us say, what is this world coming to? Listen, my friends, God is seated on his holy throne, and he is in charge. He's not disturbed. He's working out his purposes, and he uses even evil, wicked rulers to accomplish his will and purpose. That God is sovereign and supreme over the nations of the world, and that he's sitting on his holy throne signals the fact that all of humanity will someday, whether or not they like it, or whether or not they like it, whether or not they want to, someday all humanity will stand before him in judgment. Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. Here's what the Apostle John says. He envisions the end of time. He says that I saw a great white throne. White throne is symbolic of God's holiness. His throne is justice. His governance is holy. 
Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Let me say this. According to these verses, there is no human being on the face of the earth that can escape that appointment with God in judgment someday. Why? Because God is the universal king. He is not just king over the living. He is king over the dead. Even death and Hades are going to deliver up the dead to him. Death and Hades are under his dominion, under his lordship. And what that says to us, beloved, it says to us this. That at the end of the day, God is going to be, as he already is, but it's going to be manifest then. He is sovereign supreme over all. Over all entities, over all peoples. So in verses, to wrap up, and we don't have much time, so I'm just going to wrap this up. So in verses 2, 7, 8, and 9, the psalmist calls... Then, for loud songs of joy to the Lord in view of the fact that God rules and reigns over the entire earth. And the fact that he rules and reigns over the entire earth, notice that many times he repeats this throughout the Psalms, suggests this, that he is not just the God of Israel, he is not merely a local deity, but the Most High God, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the God who is the king of all the kings of the earth. That's the God we serve. That's the God we need to fear and worship and love. And we ought to worship him. We ought to praise him. Why? Because amidst all the chaos, all the confusion, we have the assurance that at the end of the day, the purposes of God will surely prevail. Oh, may God help us to keep these truths in our minds, to keep them firmly etched upon our hearts. And I say this, that if we do, it certainly will give us stability. It certainly will give us the ability to stand in these days of fearful uncertainty, of chaos, and of moral and spiritual darkness. For Christ's sake, amen.